If you turn with me to John chapter 8, I'm going to read from verses 2 to 11. It's also printed in your bulletins on page 9. John answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And thus, the simple title to this series. Let's read. John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And this is God's word. And we've been looking over the past couple months since we started at the question, who is Jesus? In chapter 2, we learn that Jesus brings joy. He's our true joy, water to wine. At the end of chapter 2, we learn that Jesus is uh, the center, the true center. The, he replaces the temple. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. And just as Moses lifted up the snake, it's me. I am the curse. I am the healing. So you would be healed. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Bread throughout the Old Testament, meaning satisfaction. And we come to this place. In John chapter 7, there's been a feast of tabernacles, and Jesus has now kind of rose with the procession. And he kind of says a, an interesting thing. He pour, as the priest in this procession, at the end of this tabernacle feast, pours out a pitcher of water, which is to symbolize the episode or the narrative in the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering in the desert and uh, they, were, they were complaining because they had no water to drink and Moses struck the rock and water came out. That's what it represented. Jesus stands before the people and he says, if anyone would come to me who's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Springs of living water will flow from him. And now we get to this passage. A lot of people avoid this passage it's in brackets. It's real ugly in this passage. If you look at your Bibles, uh, if you have a Bible with you, you know it talks about how the earliest manuscripts um, did not have this passage in here. Um, and if, it's because uh, a lot of the, this, the, if you look at the style of this text and the way it's written, there's a good chance that John didn't write this passage. I personally believe that Luke wrote it. And in many other cases in manuscripts, it was found in the book of Luke. And if you look at the style and what Luke had an eye for and the way the Spirit's working, most likely there's a good chance that Luke wrote this text. But it's ugly. It's all in brackets, and people avoid this text. But one thing we can know is that it's utterly true, that this is something that, that uh, the Lord has given to his people to see and read, and we can trust it. We can trust all the words because it's wholly consistent. And so what, what, what do we learn here? There's three things going on, right? Brief summary. Jesus is about to teach Woman, caught in the act of adultery, brought to him. 
If you can imagine, she's naked because she was caught in the act and she's before the people. And who's she before? The religious, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and Jesus. They're all teachers. And in her humiliation, they use her to, as a tool and really to, to accuse Jesus, to trap him so that they could accuse him. There are three things we're going to learn today. The trap, the reversal, and the pardon. The trap the reversal and the pardon. We're going to learn through that how we deal with guilt, how Jesus deals with our guilt, and ultimately how, that, how the way Jesus deals with it changes our lives. The trap, the reversal, the pardon. First, the trap. You see this in verses 2 to 6. Let me read this very briefly one more time. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. In the Mosaic law, specifically in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, if you're caught in the act of adultery, it was punishable by death. It was twice mentioned in this text Just in those verses we just read, that this woman was caught in the act. And so she was kind of on trial, but it wasn't a trial to determine innocence or guilt. Everybody agrees and understood there that she is guilty. She was literally caught in the act. And so the trial was a sentencing trial. They didn't come to Jesus asking to see whether he thought she was guilty or not. They came to her. They came to him to see what he would say about her punishment. What is the penalty? Because the guilt was known. And the reason why is because you can't be charged. She was already charged. You can't be charged unless there were, according to Mosaic law, there were at least two witnesses. If there were two eyewitnesses, so you have to understand what's going on here. You literally have to be caught in the act, which means that there have to be two eyewitnesses who have seen you doing it. It can't be about, you know, I saw them both and they were naked. I saw them both and they were walking out together or they walked into a room together. It's not, that's not enough. You have to have two eyewitnesses who literally see what's going on. How do you catch somebody in the act? Most likely, and commentators and scholars, they say this across the board, she was set up. Because where's the man? In the law, both man and woman are charged. Where's the man? Most likely, he was involved. So why did they set this woman up? And we see this because they were using this question as a trap. We understand that. Society throughout history has been marked by unfair treatment of women. This woman was used as a tool. She was used as a tool. And uh, her life didn't really matter. She was being used so that they could catch Jesus in a trap. And to this point, you know, Jesus, up until this point, Jesus has been teaching compassion. He's He's been teaching about grace. He's been teaching about God's mercy. And at the same time, you look at passages like Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have actually come to fulfill them. So on one hand, Jesus is affirming the law. And in fact, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a series of teachings where all he does is he affirms the law. But on the flip side, he's been teaching compassion and grace and mercy. You have the justice of God and you have the mercy of God. And to this point, that's what they've been hearing. But what about that justice? Because the law of Moses is also from God. And Jesus claimed everything's going to be fulfilled. He says there's not an iota that will be left out in the text, in the Bible. Everything has to be fulfilled. All will be fulfilled. 
teachers absolutely could not stand this message on grace because it attracted the prostitutes. It attracted the poor. It attracted the vagrants, the disenfranchised. And they couldn't stand this message that Jesus is preaching in many ways. Here's the difference between religion and Christianity. The religious, they can't reconcile mercy and the justice of God. Mercy and justice, they're always at war in the religious. And what happens when you have mercy on one hand and justice on the other hand battling in your heart? You have guilt. That's a byproduct. You have guilt. For us, we have guilt. We feel guilt. We experience guilt because we understand the law and we also need mercy. And because we know that we fail. We know that we're flawed. God's law... It, it points to our need for obedience, our need for humility. And as a result, in religion, the good people are accepted. The good people are acceptable. The ones who obey and who want to live a holy life, they're acceptable. The ones who are rejected are the ones who can't obey, the ones who don't obey, the ones who are unable. And so here's Jesus. Either on one hand, he's going to falter on the side of justice, or he's going to falter on the side of grace. And he's been teaching both. I'll say it another way. On one hand, he's going to say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will execute you because you are sinful and because you are flawed. Either he's going to do that, or he's going to say, come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. On one hand, he's going to trample on the woman. He's going to step all over the woman and uphold the law. That's what they're waiting to see. Or, He's going to trample on the law and uphold the woman. That's the trap. The character of Christ is either going to disregard the woman or disregard the law. And if you, take, if you fall on one side or the other, if you fall to disregard the woman or disregard the law, then you've denied ultimately the character of who Jesus is, the person of Christ and who he is. If you fall on one side and cling to that one side of Christ, you've denied who he is altogether. To deny one aspect of Christ's character is to deny all of him. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. You know, some people say, you know, I love the fact that you preach that God is a God of love. And you walk away saying, there's no call, there's no need to be holy. And if you cling to that, if you hold on to that, then you've denied Jesus, the person of Christ altogether, and who he is, his ultimate message. On the flip side, we say, well, God is holy. So, I understand that there's grace, I understand that there's mercy, but we have to repent and we have to live holy lives and we have, to, we have to cling because otherwise God will not be happy with us. You can't make the mistake of the religious. You can't focus, please don't focus, on one dimension of who Jesus is as like he's like some sort of get out of jail free card. If you emphasize the love of God and ignore the call to holiness, then you're going to avoid Jesus. You know why? Because what you're going to end up doing is you're going to use Jesus over and over as just a get-out-of-jail-free card, and you're going to constantly run away from him. But on the flip side, if you emphasize the call of Christ, the obedience to Jesus, the obedience to God, without looking at the love and the mercy and the grace of God, how are you going to deal with your guilt? You're going to feel incredibly guilty. You're going to use your works, your good deeds, as a way of proving that you are worthy. Both ways, Flannery O'Connor used to say that um, the religious, she was talking about herself, the best way to avoid Jesus as your savior was to become a good person. 
And a lot of us, that's the way we fall. We either fall in one way or the other. And what we're doing, in essence, is we're setting up traps. We're setting up traps, tests for Jesus. What's another way that we set up traps? This is the obvious point in this text. We throw stones at other people. We're constantly throwing stones at other people. We're constantly destroying other people with our accusations and our judgment. Verse 4, what do they do? Let's look at verse 4. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? The Pharisees were about to stone a woman caught in the act of adultery, humiliate her, set her up as an example to prove a point that they are righteous, that we are more righteous, that we have more authority, we are more entitled, and we are more acceptable because we obey. Because the Pharisees had a tremendous system of belief and living out their beliefs. Incredibly zealous, setting up a system of laws to shield themselves from committing God's true laws, God's Ten Commandments. We do this all the time. We're going to throw stones at other people. Why do we do that? We do that because our egos are starving. Our egos are constantly starving. And so we feed on the compliments of other people. We feed on the recognition of other people. We feed on our connections to certain types of people. We avoid conflict because to go into conflict is to risk the possibility of losing recognition, to lose uh, a connection with people, to lose compliments. We feed on stoning people. We stone their reputations, don't we? We stone their reputations. We stone their statuses. We stone their pedigrees. We compare ourselves constantly. Our bodies, our, our, our souls, our hearts are constantly comparing ourselves with other people. Feeding on the weakness of others to make ourselves feel right. And so what we're doing is we're making an example. We're presenting ourselves be- before other people and saying, you know, in the law, these people are condemnable, but not me. I'm more entitled. I'm more righteous. I'm not perfect, but I'm better. I'm more acceptable. It's our way of dealing with our utter helplessness. It's our way of dealing with our weakness, our nakedness, our insecurity. What do I mean by nakedness? John Paul Sartre, famous philosopher, in 1943 came up with pretty much his greatest work, which is called Being and Nothingness. And in this book, what he says is, your consciousness of guilt is, emerges from the concept of you looking through a keyhole. Imagine, imagine that you're a guy, if you're not a guy. Imagine looking through a keyhole, and you see a beautiful woman, and she's taking off her clothes. She's undressing. The sense of power that you have from knowing that she doesn't see you. And you can see through that keyhole, and you see that person. You see all her flaws, and you see all her beauty, and at the same time, all her flaws. But Jean-Paul Sartre says, But at that moment, there's a creak behind you and an astonishing horror comes upon you because you realize that right behind you is another keyhole. That's guilt. That's understanding all of a sudden your nakedness and who you are at that moment and that other people and that they're, obviously, who's looking through the keyhole and, and that perspective, philosophically, you can work that out over the course of time, but to understand deep nakedness, true consciousness of who you are in your guilt. That's Sartre. We throw stones as a way of dealing with our utter helplessness, our weakness, our, our nakedness. And, and how does Jesus respond? 
Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When we hear the word meek, we think, it's a, it's a word we don't use. We think of the word weak. That meekness is weakness, but that's not Jesus here. The word meekness in this passage, the way he's responding, look at Jesus. They come to him with a trap, and what does he do? He stoops down and he's just writing on the ground. We're going to get to that in a moment, but what's going on here? It's, meekness is like a horse in a race. If you ever watch those horse movies like Seabiscuit, you have these powerful horses, incredible power, and yet incredible submission to their rider. That's meekness. Absolute power. Absolute self-control. And so they're coming to him, they're accusing him, they're ready to pounce on him, and yet he's riding on the ground. So gentle. Not once do you see his blood temperature boil at all. Not once do you see his temperature rise. You ever watch a Bruce Lee film? I told myself that as a preacher, I would not make Asian references, you know, especially growing up being called Bruce Lee and stuff like that, right? But you ever watch Bruce Lee movies? In Bruce Lee movies, he only made a few. There were only four from China, right? And one, one that he made here in the United States. But um, if you read Joel Stein, he is an actual a senior editor for Time Magazine. In the 1990s, wrote an article about Bruce Lee. And he said, this man has changed Hollywood. And well, it's so subtle because he's only made so many movies, but the thing is, his impact is so clear and so vast. What is a typical Bruce Lee movie? A man who comes from God knows where, shows up, and hanging out with his loved ones, but they're bullied and they're attacked. So what does he do? He stands in the gap, and all of a sudden, he was a waiter, but now all of a sudden, he's like this great martial arts expert, and he kills everybody, and there's usually a hundred of them. And then the movie ends, you know? And everybody's dead. That's Bruce Lee. Those are, that's Bruce Lee. The, the power of, it's amazing power. It's amazing power, but absolute self-control. He's a waiter. He's a busboy. And, and that's what's going on here. You know, Joel Stein says, that's why we're fascinated by Bruce Lee movies. But that's also why Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Now, why can't we be meek? My favorite preacher says, most of us feel inferior, and so we act superior. That's why we can't be meek. And this is why we treat waiters poorly. This is why we treat waitresses poorly at restaurants. This is why we talk bad about our boss, whether you're somebody who's working for you or somebody that you're working for. This is the reason why we have those kind of relationships with them. And, and the reason why is because our egos are hungry. We're starving. The Bible says we need to starve. We need to continue to starve our egos until they almost die. That's what gets rid of the superiority. Now, his character, Jesus' character, is going to change our character. So uh, what that means is that we can, be, we can have absolute power. We can have this power, but we can only have it in our weakness. Now, the trap was that they brought before him a woman Naked, humiliated, punishable by death, to trap him to see whether or not he's going to stamp on the law and uphold the woman, or uphold the woman. I, I mean, stamp on the woman and uphold the law. That's the trap. What's the uh, what's the reversal? You see this in verses six to nine. What is Jesus doing? He bends down. He's writing on the ground. Commentators have tried to figure out and formulate what exactly he was writing at that moment in time. And to be honest, with all the commentaries that I've read and looked at and studied, at the end of the day, I think the answer is we don't really know what he wrote. We don't really know what he wrote. But 
it's that, that sentence is in there for a reason, and, and I believe that it's in there because the author of this text is not writing fiction. He's not writing a legend. If it was a legend in those days, it would not be written like this. You have to understand the literary genre would not allow for something like this to be considered good fiction. This author is writing news. He's writing history. He's telling us a story that is true. And he's trying to tell you what something about Jesus in doing this that tells you something that is true about who Jesus is, his character. And what do you see? Absolute power. Absolute self-control. Look at the poise of Jesus. He's being attacked by the teachers and the Pharisees, the politicians and the rich people of his day, the religiously upright of his day. Absolute poise. Absolute poise. He's calm. He's unrattled. And uh, he has courage. He's incredibly brave. Incredible power. But he's chosen to be weak. That's what we see about Jesus here. Remember Daniel, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. He rises as an exile and approaches the most powerful empire to date, the the most powerful king to date in world history. And what does he tell him? The king has a dream. What does he tell him? Your days are numbered. Incredible courage. Incredible bravery. Incredible poise. They threaten him to throw him into a furnace, the earlier part of Daniel. And he says, my God will rescue me. But even if, I, even if he doesn't, I will praise him. Incredible poise. Incredible power. Incredible in his weakness. And, uh, and he's respectful, but he's incredibly courageous. Now, what does Jesus say? He reverses the trap. And it's not like how you think. We think that when he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And we think that what he means by that is what he says is that only a sinless person can carry out an execution. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Because if that's what Jesus is saying, you would laugh at it, the Pharisees would laugh at it, the teachers of the law would laugh, and we would all dismiss him altogether. That's not what he means. Because if that's what he really meant, then we can't charge people like Hitler. If that's what he really meant, because we're sinless, we, because we have sin, we can't charge a serial killer, you know, for murder. That's not what he's saying. And that's therein lies his reversal of the trap. The Jews knew that capital punishment could easily be abused because of the law, if something's punishable by death. And so what Jesus does is, well, that's why the woman was probably set up. That's why she probably was set up, because, number one, we don't see the man. We don't know where he was. Most likely he was involved in this situation here, this little charade. And, and the woman who is, she clearly committed adultery, is now brought before uh, Jesus so that they could trap him. But there had to be absolute certainty, you know, and so that they could charge her. And Jesus, he actually goes through the Old Testament law when he's saying what he said, that if anyone is is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Because if you think about it, there was no man. The the man wasn't there. In the Old Testament law, the man and the woman both had to be executed if they committed adultery. We don't see the man here. And uh, in in that same Old Testament law, what you read there is that a judge who is partial should also be condemned to death. So what Jesus is saying by what he's saying is either A, you are an impartial judge, which means that you also should be executed, or you didn't really see what happened. 
Now, if you're saying you saw it because you have witnesses, then you're being impartial because I don't see a man here. It's just a woman. Otherwise, you know, if any one of you is without sin, you know, let him cast the first stone. Let him be the one to do it. Another way, you know, if, if you're not quite getting this, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I know you. I know you. I know what you're doing. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're attempting to do. You've bought this woman out here. Go ahead. You're without sin? You ready to charge her? Go ahead. Go do it. But I know you. You're an impartial judge. One by one, whatever it was that he was said, however they took it, they were so cut to the heart that one by one, they were dropping their stones and they walked away. Starting with the older ones, probably because they have more sin. And particularly in the nature of, of adultery, you know, you're not supposed to, the executor of a crime could not have committed the same crime. So a lot of commentators say, well, he may actually be t- telling them, accusing them of the same crime. That's why they can't commit this, that's why they can't carry out the execution. That could very well have been the case. But regardless, they were so cut to the heart. Jesus had turned the trap around. He's taken away their right to be the judge and even the witness and the executor of the crime. Now, in all this, he doesn't deny the guilt of the woman. He doesn't stand in front of them and say, you know what? Guys, I was there too. This is what really happened. You know it. That's not what he says. When he approaches the woman, he says, woman, has no one condemned you? He doesn't say, woman, are you not guilty? That's not what he asks. He says, has no one condemned you? You are guilty, but you're not condemned. They're cut to the heart. That's the reversal. Now we're going to get to the pardon. And we see this in verses 9 to 11. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Classic in these texts, Jesus saves a person and then commissions them. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. How do you think this woman responded? I found this to be really interesting because by this point, everyone was gone. So you know the woman was changed. You know she was transformed because the only two people left in the narrative are herself and Jesus. And somebody had to tell the story in order for it to be written. Somebody had to explain what she had done, what had happened, who she is, and who Jesus is. The woman was changed. She was transformed. She had to have been. And, and you look at here and you see the gentleness of Jesus. But she was healed. She's healed. You know, on one hand, what he's saying here is, is you are not a victim. Don't blame shift. Don't uh, you know, don't play the victim here. A lot of times we look at the church and we vilify, you know, we degrade the religious, we degrade our past church experiences and how bad they were. And that's not what uh, we want to do. Because, not just because the intent of the whoever was preaching at the time when you, when, you were, when you heard what you heard back in the day when you were in the church, but we tend to look at our past experiences of the church as very bad experiences. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not looking at the woman and saying, Forget about everything that those guys are saying. You know, he doesn't do that. 
What he asks is, he assumes her guilt. He says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And what he says here is, then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. He doesn't say you're not guilty. He says you're guilty, but you're not condemned. But he stands at her defense as her advocate. You know what an advocate is? An advocate is someone that stands with you for your defense. If your advocate is good, then you're going to be good. If your advocate is smart, then you're smart. If your advocate is victorious, then you're going to be victorious. If your advocate is weak, then you're weak. You've put your life into the hands of your advocate, and they are going to defend you. They are going to uphold you. And so he stands as her advocate. And look at him, incredible power again, yet so tender. Perfect obedience to the law, yet perfect mercy. That's Jesus. One by one, they all dropped their stones and they all walked away until what? The author says, until Jesus was left. Jesus is alone. Now, when I read the story, I used to think, wow, the woman must have been like, whew, let me go get my clothes. Thank you very much. I'll see you later. I don't think that's what happened here. Imagine what's going on. They're walking away. Jesus is left. Teachers of the law, walking away one by one, they all look to the teacher. He's left. Jesus Christ, the one person who is sinless, who has the right to pick up a stone and stone the woman. Jesus is perfect obedience, widely known. Preaching the law, widely known. Affirming the law, upholding the law. And yet, grace, tender, gentle. But the only man, the only one who actually has the right to pick up a stone and stone the woman. Everybody was gone but Jesus. The one person who's able to cast a stone. The woman's exposed. And yet here we see who Jesus really is. You know, when we first come to see Jesus, we see truth. And it makes us want to run. It makes us want to run away. But here you see Jesus. And, and what do you see? He's think, he, what he says is amazing. He says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He could have said, go and leave your life of sin and I won't condemn you. That's not what he says. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go, leave your life of sin. Another way of saying that is, you are not condemned. You, I'm setting you free. Now you're free to live the life that I've called you to live. You're utterly free. You're not condemned. You're accepted. Jesus is actually thinking at another level. In the word of encouragement printed in your bulletin today, you see Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, You're guilty. Somebody has to pay. Why can't God just forgive? I'm telling you, you will not be able to reconcile true forgiveness unless you understand the concept that somebody has to pay. Imagine someone borrows a brand new car that you just purchased with your own money for the first time. You go out, somebody borrows it, they crash it into a wall. Do you just let them go? Somebody's got to pay. Either that person's got to pay or you have to pay. If you let that person go, then what you're saying is, I'm absorbing the cost. I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay the price. Somebody always has to pay the price. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostle Paul is saying, somebody has to pay, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For For in Christ Jesus, he has set me free from the law. He has set me free from the power of the law. The law of the spirit of life 
set me free from the law of death. It's an amazing passage. What he's saying here is that you are guilty. Somebody has to pay, but you are not condemned because I can pay and I will pay and I have paid the price for you. Gladly for you. Look at the justice of God. Look at the mercy of God. Jesus is speaking real time to this woman, but he's really looking ahead when he's speaking to the woman. He's saying, I will be condemned for you. Somebody's got to pay. In John chapter 19, verses 4 to 7, we come to another trial. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. In other words, he was innocent. There was no eyewitness who could say that he was guilty. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Here, they bring out a woman, and she's absolutely guilty. No question. And Jesus says, you are not condemned. But in John chapter 19, Pilate brings out the only, the most perfect man that ever walked the earth and says, I find no basis for a charge against him. And they say, kill him, crucify him. Here, we have a naked woman, caught. But on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked. And he did that because of his love. What he's saying is, you can't bear the stones. We can't bear the stones. But the fists and the lashes and the punches and the insults that were intended for you, I've absorbed. They were hurled at me. They were hurled at me. The stones won't be thrown at you because they'll be rolled over my grave. On the cross, Jesus will be crushed, crushed by the weight. The rock of God's wrath will crush Jesus so that we will not be crushed. God's wrath will be pelted at Christ on the cross. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he he means is saying, I'm alone. I'm utterly alone. No one's going to stand in my defense. There will be no advocate for me. On the cross, I'm going to give up my spirit. Why? So that you can have the spirit of God. And that means power. There's a hymn. There's a wonderful hymn. At the last line, it says that Jesus sucked out the dregs of God's wrath. It's an amazing hymn. You know what the dregs are? When you sip tea, if you're a sophisticated tea drinker, I am not. If you, if, you, if you sip tea, there are these particles in the tea, you know, actual tea leaves. And you constantly pour more water until eventually the effectivity of that tea starts to wear out. You see the discoloration. Eventually it starts to become more like water. That hymn is saying that Jesus on the cross, to the end, sucked out the dregs of God's wrath. The stones that were meant for us, he stood condemned. They were pelted at Christ on the cross. And he did it alone. He died alone so that we would never be alone. That's the gospel. On the cross, the mercy of God and the justice of God embrace We have a hard time reconciling that because we're religious. Even if you don't think you're religious, we're constantly proving ourselves. 
So it's hard to, to see grace and mercy on the cross. There's an amazing dance of grace and mercy as Jesus hung there, standing between the law and grace. And they embrace, they kiss on the cross. And he does that for us, for you. I could spend a lot of time talking about the implications. I'll say it very quickly. When you starve your ego to death, it feels like death. It feels like you're starving. You need recognition. You need status. You need acceptance. You need approval. But the gospel takes away all superiority. Why? Because you did nothing to earn the one acceptance that you need. And because you have it, it's been freely given to you. You can't lose it. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to lose it. And because of the gospel, it takes away any reason to feel superior in front of other people. Because you're not based on, you're not judged based on how well you obey. Because it's based on how well Christ obeyed. And it's not based on how much you failed. Because his righteousness covers us. That's the gospel. Otherwise, it would not be good news. And that's going to heal your sense of entitlement. That's going to heal your your sense. You're going to be very honest about your abilities. You're going to be honest about your flaws. We can actually come and not just privately confess. Look at the woman. Somebody had to tell this story. Somebody had to be able to open up the dirt and the ugliness of the situation without blame shifting, without making themselves out to be a victim. That's what the gospel does. And what that does is when you take away the entitlement, when you take away the superiority, when you take away the bitterness and you become honest about yourself and who you are, you know what happens? You become joyful. You become grateful and you become joyful. You become joyful and you become grateful. And when you get rid of the superiority, what happens? You start to be able to connect with people far and wide, a lot of people who are very different than you. You know, all of our lives here, we're intertwined, we're coming together, but we all live very, very different lifestyles. And the thing is, we can still come together. And what happens? Jesus says that in all this, you become connected to the vine of Christ and you become a body. It's amazing. We become organically built on one truth, and that is, we've all sinned, we've all failed before, the, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we've all been redeemed. That is an amazing power that we can rest in. And as a result, um, remember the thing about the call, last thing. Jesus doesn't say, go, stop sinning, and you won't be condemned. He says, you are not condemned, so stop sinning. We become free. We can actually have power to obey. We can actually understand conviction. The Spirit now comes in and it changes you. It actually lives and dwells inside you. Because Jesus gave up the Spirit, we can have the Spirit in our lives. And as a result, we can be transformed We can actually want to know the Lord and we have complete access because Jesus has made the way. God has made a way for us in Christ. What are your excuses? Are you too afraid to see him? Are you too beat up by religion to see him? Are you too bruised by other people so you fear him? You say, you know, Donnie, I don't know what, you you have no idea what I've been through and what I've done. He has removed our transgressions from us. There's forgiveness in despair. But Donnie, I have so, so many problems. There is hope in despair. Donnie, I'm so confused. I want to get my act together before I'm able to walk into the church. There is wisdom in despair. But I'm so broken. There is healing. There is healing 
in despair. I'm afraid of what he's going to call me to. There is joy in despair. And if you continue on, if you continue to press on, you're going to be like Legolas in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers. You're going to say one day, forgive me. Forgive me for my despair. And you'll have joy.